0: Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Siebra on The Definitive Rap.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Wrap. I am Bayla Seabrow. Thank you to Five Towns Central for sponsoring this show. Math tutor, healthcare advocate, college guidance counselor, nutrition coach, try to be all of those things with no training in any of them. And please do it while working a full-time job. Today's parents are expected not only to care for their children but to help them develop the skills they'll need to thrive in our current socioeconomic reality. Yet the majority of parents, even the most caring ones, aren't trained in skill development and lack the resources to get assistance. It's almost like parents are being set up to fail. How do we fix this problem? And what happens if we don't? The solution comes from our guest today, economist and father, Nate Hilger, who holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Stanford and a PhD in economics from Harvard. In 2020, he served as a lead policy consultant on early childhood and non-K-12 child development issues. His work on the origins of success in children has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and others. He lives with his wife and son near San Francisco. Nate suggests that the key is to ask less of parents, not more. He argues that America should consider child development a public investment with a potentially monumental payoff and that we need a New Deal-style program on the scale of Medicare to drive this investment. He calls it family care, and as he explains, and we will hear, to make this happen, parents must organize to wield more unified political power on behalf of children who he points out will always be the largest block of disenfranchised people in this country. Do parents have the necessary political juice? According to our guest, if they follow in the footsteps of people over 65 and focus on their broader shared interests, they can make a program like Family Care as politically sacred as Medicare and Social Security. As for what's at stake, asking too much of parents results in lost opportunities that limit children's success and make all of us worse off. His book, The Parent Trap, is tremendously hopeful, and we will hear more. Nate, welcome, welcome to The Definitive Wrap.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Bela. It's really nice to be here.
1: What is the trap that you feel today's parents are in?
0: I think there are a few traps that I try to highlight in the book. The The first trap is the one you, you mentioned in your really nice introduction that we have grossly unrealistic expectations of parents. We are just asking too much of this group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, parents, you mentioned parents have to help kids with math. They have to help right. kids learn all these complicated skills around conflict resolution. And... That's
1: only some of the things. I mean, my gosh, there's just so much more.
0: <laughs> there's so much. And- yeah um i think it's it's just not pot we i i try i'm trying to make people with this book view child skill development more like they view flying an airplane or building a house you know something that you would be kind of annoyed if somebody insisted you do that yourself like you should be getting a lot of professional support from people with training and experience to do these things well people like tutors and coaches and counselors which is what rich people do in our country but most but most other people can't can't put it together independently so that's the first trap is these unrealistic expectations the second trap is a little more subtle and it's something that really came out of my process of writing the book you know I had like a hundred drafts of this book it was a long process and I started out by pointing out that the unequal ability of families to provide their kids with opportunity was driving a lot of inequality in our country by class and by race and a lot of early readers told me that argument was going to really rub people the wrong way. It was going to make people think that I was accusing some parents of failure. I was, you know, claiming that some parents were better pe- better at loving and raising their kids than other parents. It just put everybody on edge, you know, right. it kind of, it would shut down the conversation rather than opening up people's minds. And I started to think of that as kind of a trap because the underlying reality is there that There are vastly unequal opportunities across families in America outside of our K-12 school system. And we don't really have an easy way to talk about that without scaring everybody. So I try to develop some language in the book to to begin working our way around that trap and have more comfortable, candid conversations about what some loving parents are able to provide and what some equally loving, dedicated parents are not able to provide. And that it does matter. And there's no insult to the parents involved in that discussion. So that's the second trap is our inability to talk about this huge part of inequality that involves the opportunities families can provide on their own. And then there's one more trap, um, which is that parents are really batting below their weight politically. We are a divided group. Are you a parent, Bela?
1: I am, yes. My my kids are are older, my kids are adults.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, but parents are not anything like senior citizens. Senior citizens have come together. You mentioned this in your introduction. They formed this massive bipartisan lobbying organization, the American Association of Retired People. It has 40 million members. It recruits everybody to join. And you don't have to join based on some ideological thing. You just join because you want a discount at you know at your next hotel stay. Or you want a discount when you go to to Sizzler for dinner. You know, it's just like very practical pocketbook strategies. And they do get some licensing fees from offering their, their reputable brand to good health insurance programs. So I think it would be, it's crazy to me that parents don't have an organization like this that starts recruiting us when we find out we're pregnant. When we go to our OBGYN appointments, right. when we go to our pediatrician appointments, we so desperately need discounts on strollers and- car seats and yeah. baby formula and all that I agree. stuff yeah it's a great time babies to start... cost
1: more than adults a newborn baby costs more than an adult
0: yeah babies are babies are very expensive so it's a great time to start offering people practical discounts um and so i think the third trap is getting parents to see that we have really big shared interests we don't have to fight about guns and abortion and things where we have good faith disagreements with each other just like senior citizens we can come together and agree we need safe you know excellent learning environments for our kids from age zero to five, after school, summer breaks. We need excellent college preparation and application assistance. We need excellent tutoring. We need excellent counseling for mental health and behavioral problems. All the stuff that rich parents buy privately on their own. We all need access to that stuff because it really has been found in the data to benefit kids long-term.
1: Right. So how do we end up in such a spot? Because the previous generation somehow, I don't know, they seem to, to get it all together.
0: Well, I think it's a, it's a bit of an illusion. Um, for, for our whole history, lower income kids have wound up reaching adulthood with weaker skills than higher income uh-huh. kids. And that has resulted in much worse careers for lower income kids than higher income mm-hmm. kids. And a very related, not identical, but very related phenomenon is the racial dynamic that Black and Hispanic and Native American kids have also had much weaker opportunities to build skills in childhood. And that has mm-hmm. grossly harmed their career prospects. And that's not the only thing going on there. There's also labor market discrimination and other factors in the ra- in the racial I- area. But um, a big part of the racial problem is a class problem. And it's always been that way. It's gotten a little worse. Uh, it, it, people debate the degree of upward mobility over the last, you know, 40, 50, 100 years. But it's always right. been the case that poor kids have way less opportunity and have way less successful careers on average than upper mm-hmm. middle class and rich kids.
1: So what I assumed not to have been a problem years ago, it's just that it wasn't discussed so openly as today.
0: I think so. And I think yeah. some of the data, the data has changed, too. Yeah, that's we, true. We, it's pretty new to have um, data really allowing measurement of these social mobility trends right. we didn't acro- have across generations.
1: Right. The people yeah. didn't talk about it. No one knew. That's just the way mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, And it,
0: the, the stakes were lower, too. We, some of what you're talking about reflects growing inequality. In the 1950s and 60s, inequality was a lot lower than it is today. Mm
1: -hmm. Right.
0: So the difference between a good career and a a less successful career was not as dramatic as it is today.
1: Right. So why can't parents develop these skills on their own?
0: Building skills, we kind of have this idea because I think related to the fact that we've asked women to do this for a long, long time, you know, we kind of have built this myth that, If we're asking women to do something, it must be not that hard, or it must be something that comes naturally to people. Because if we're not going to offer the same legal and intellectual and spiritual kind of rights to women as men, you know, we can't also assign them a task that is extremely complicated and sophisticated and difficult that wouldn't really add up. Uh So, so I think there's some aspect of the feminization of childcare that, um, maybe related to our unwillingness to see it as a complicated, high stakes, professional, serious endeavor. Um, But the reason why I think it's really hard for individual parents to do this on their own is because it is like, it's more like building a house or flying an airplane. Like it's, it's complicated enough that you get a lot better with a lot of practice. And the practice, I talk about five forces in the book. There are like Mm -hmm. structural forces that make it hard for individual parents to, to, really become excellent at building skills as an example of one of these forces is, is learning by doing and practice. Right. If you are a seventh grade math teacher, you see a hundred kids per year in the same similar age ranges, mm-hmm. studying similar math problems in the same part of the curriculum year after year. Right. And what we see, what we see in the data on teachers is that they get better over time. They get better at imparting knowledge and skills to their kids because they just learn tricks. They learn, not only do they become experts in the math, they become experts in the psychology and the coaching of different kinds of child, you know, children's personalities. Right. It's a combination of knowing the skills yourself and uh-huh. knowing how to, to inject them into any given child's brain and body. And, you know, and that's a very complicated thing. And the fact that teachers get way better year after year is kind of a an alarm for parents, because we only have one or two or three kids, and they go through they each go through each phase one time you know if mm-hmm. if you have one or two kids you you get to see seventh grade math one or two times
1: right and you right. get
0: to and you get to handle that in your spare time
1: right and that's right. true of
0: every phase in childhood. you do not get the kind of practice that a professional gets, and it's going right. to make it hard for it's going to make it hard for you to master the the skill of imparting that that kind of knowledge to that to that kid right. So that's one example of a structural force. There, are, there are several others that I talk about in the book. Um, another one. What about one... just
1: I just I'm just wondering for uh, that? I don't want to lose my train of thought because you yeah. mentioned one, two, three kids. What about families that have um, seven, eight, nine, ten kids? I'm um, you know, in the Orthodox yeah. Jewish world, we have that.
0: Yes, that is very rare in in America um, oh. today, but um, it still is like. Compared to the experience that a teacher gets with 100 kids a year at, in the same age range, you're going to get 10 kids, and but that practice is going to be spread out by one and a half, two, three years between each kid. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be forgetting things. So it's like kind of an edge case that isn't very common or relevant anymore. But it, if there were lots of people having 10 kids, uh-huh. it would be pretty interesting to see parents gaining proficiency in certain things over over um, those rounds of practice. Right. Yeah. Um, another example of a structural problem that is makes it hard for parents, is economists call it asymmetric information, which is that it's really hard for you to know that you're not getting ripped off if you do try to outsource some of this skill development stuff. You know, if you're not familiar with a lot of educational and healthcare bureaucracies, you might kind of get a sense that tutoring, suppose your child is struggling in math, and you think, okay, well, maybe tutoring would help. If you go online and search for a tutor, you're going to see a lot of for-profit companies trying to sell you tutoring. making big, big promises, you know, and some of them are, you know, some of them are scams and some of them are overpriced and some of them are real, but it's really hard for an amateur loving parent to sort all that out. And so the result often is just, you know, you kind of give up. You're like, I don't want to be ripped off. I don't want to do something stupid. This is overwhelming. And I have a full-time job and 10 other problems. So I'm just going to hope that my school teachers can help my kid overcome this problem. So that, those are examples like you, like you kind of need to be an expert to right. in some sense to procure the services. That's not a simple problem. So yeah, asymmetric information and learning by doing are two examples of forces that make right. it hard for individual parents to solve these problems on their own. Wow.
1: In your book, you suggest that parents um, having more political power could be part of the solution. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Totally. We we so we've talked a little bit about how parents want um, parents should really follow in the footsteps of senior citizens, elderly folks, and um, form a mass membership um, bipartisan organization such as the American Association of Retired People. Um, to do that one one of my goals in the book is to help along with other folks who have this idea is to just get this idea going in the population and seed it with people and hope that there are, you know, a couple hundred million adults in America. <clears throat> I'm kind of hoping that one or two or 10 people here are, you know, this podcast and think, wow, nobody has started this organization. You know, if you're an inspiring charismatic person who is bipartisan by nature and, you know, you have kids. You have an an inspiring personal story. You you are attracted to leadership opportunities. We need an organization like this, um, yeah. and so I hope I, I'm hoping that we can just get everybody talking about this and recognizing the need for it.
1: Right. There is an organization. That, that would be
0: amazing. It would be amazing. Maybe it's you. I don't know. I don't um, know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there there is an organization that could have potentially played this role. And it is surprisingly the National Parent Teacher Association. That is surprisingly the closest thing we have to the, the American Association of Retired People that represents the interests of parents. But yeah, they have been believing membership for decades. Mm. Um, they are not pursuing the same strategy of the AARP. Instead of asking very little of members to just get millions and millions of people to join, they kind of have a culture of like asking you to volunteer and take time and, oh. you know, do things in person and and they only start really recruiting when kids enter public schools and Mm -hmm. that gives up on the biggest recruitment opportunity in parenting which is when you really need all these discounts early in in infancy so i i think something is is just not adding up with that organization despite its very long illustrious history and it's pretty bipartisan origin um so i think we need to they need to shake things up or we need a competitor (laughs) right
1: right you suggest that parents need more support. Uh, do you mean government agencies or are you talking about private organizations?
0: I think that do this would be a, a, a system of subsidies that would basically amount to vouchers. I don't want a big new government agency that creates a one-size-fits-all program for parents run by federal administrators. I think that is a recipe for disaster, frankly. I think it should be a, a universal affordability kind of policy where parents would be able to, it, pay, no parent would be expected to spend more than say 7% of their income on childcare. And the program family care would provide reimbursement for um, families to spend money on any, you know, eligible childcare provider. And that eligibility would be a little bit of a quality uh gate you couldn't you couldn't be eligible for reimbursement just like our college system we have pell grants for colleges and if if i just spun up a college tomorrow and started demanding money and giving crazy lectures i wouldn't be eligible for pell grants because it's not i'm not meeting the quality bar so it weeds out a lot of bad actors and Mm. a lot of scams and it, it gives parents a little peace of mind that um if they send their kid to an eligible childcare center or after-school program or summer program or tutor, they're not going to be getting ripped off by a scam. They uh-huh. still have to do their do a little bit of diligence, of course. Parents yes. are never going to stop trying to do that, but um, I think it would really help the market to weed out the scams and the bad actors. Mm. Um, and so you would be working. Family care would be a big price tag for the federal government, but the money would be flowing throughout the whole economy to private non-largely nonprofit organizations some of them could be religious you know i think democrats should be open to helping families send their kids to catholic and jewish and and muslim high quality child care centers right you can learn you know uh, this um elliot haspel has made the great point that kids can learn to read from biblical passages oh sure the torah yeah. i mean there oh, are yeah. wonderful religious traditions that can help impart knowledge in ways that are inspiring to fit to families. And I think that could help get more bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. So it's really about well, it's very interesting. It's really about pushing money into local communities to make right. more so that more families can access local tutors, coaches, counselors, early childhood education. according to
1: their culture.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Amazing. That would be unbelievable. Um, you're even proposing an AARP for parents. Uh, what would that look like?
0: So, yeah, we, we, I've gone into some of the details on that in this discussion. Um, I think one other area that I think we haven't talked about: the people think that the AARP has a big lobbying budget because of its membership dues, but that's actually false. Most of a lot of their budget comes from licensing deals with health insurance providers. This is getting a little bit wonky for listeners out there. But I did not I really know think, that. Yeah. I think there's a business strategy. Uh, lesson for uh-huh. this this hypothetical organization that could represent parents. I think the analog to health and ins- licensing, health insurance, would be licensing life insurance because when you become a parent, a few months into becoming a parent, or a couple years into becoming a parent, it occurs to you, "Holy crap, what happens if we die?" You know, like at least for me, I, I didn't. No, think No, no, you're life right. Insurance. You
1: know, we we definitely we we think of our mortality when we yeah. realize. That we our our mortality more so when we're parents because we're concerned who's going to take care of the children and what's going to happen, you know, after we're gone, or God forbid something happens while the children are very young, absolutely don't know. Yeah,
0: so that I think is a big opportunity of this kind of organization to make money if it could get a good reputation as a bipartisan lobbying group representing the broad shared interests of parents, it could tap into some of that that. Um, reputation by offering sort of a badge of license to selected high quality life insurance products. And it would have to be careful not to be kind of shady in those deals because there could be incentives to choose like lower quality life insurance products and overcharge parents. Uh People have accused the AARP of doing that a little bit, but this is kind of small potatoes compared to the revenue opportunity that could help get this organization and all parents collectively more political power. Right.
1: And uh, in what way is all of this an issue of racial and uh racial equality? You know, you mentioned a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so obviously that's a sensitive topic. Um, but if I I argue in the book that if we had a, if we enacted something like family care, like uh you know a not messing around New Deal style large new fe- federal program that poured money into local communities for two theaters teachers and tutors and counselors and coaches so that all kids had access to high quality learning opportunities from zero to age not just in school which is only 10% of children's time but right. from age 0 to 5 from after school extracurricular activities for summer activities and for all these other components of family care that we've been talking about yeah i argue in the book that if we really did that we would close most of our racial opportunity and economic outcome gaps Mm. Black kids and Hispanic kids and Native American kids would reach adulthood with pretty similar skills to upper middle class white kids. Right, And as a result, some people are skeptical of this. They think, well, even if that happened, Black people and Hispanic people and Native American people might earn a lot less money because of discrimination by employers. Mm-hmm. And what I argue in the book is that there's some hope there. There's some real, there's some, the data really gives us reason to hope there because when racial minorities do have high skills, they capitalize on them successfully in our in our modern labor market.
1: Right, right, and and ultimately, it's good for everyone. It's good for the entire society. You know, we want Absolutely. everyone to succeed.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And be, beyond the fact that high skilled minorities already achieve uh, quite a lot of economic success, I think if we upgraded the skill opportunity, the skill opportunity develop, um, the skill development opportunities of the this group over, you know, overall. It would change attitudes because if, if, you know, if white people are suddenly going to the dentist and their child's dentist is a, is a black woman or they're going to their accountant and their accountant is a Hispanic, you know, man, and they're going, you know, if they're just interacting with black and Hispanic and native American people in higher skilled professions where they really rely on the person and they're grateful for the services provided. I think it would kind of push back on the stereotypes that have developed over centuries,
1: right? Right, and I guess that would include uh, Jewish groups as well. You know, I, but for those that are not educated, and if they would be educated, if there would be more opportunities available for them, the same thing. So it really it it affects everyone.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Some of these, some of these, um, within any given group, there are subgroups that. Are not thriving economically right. and that's that's true for jews it's true for well, christians it,
1: it's 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 all it's all about uh socioeconomic reasons
0: yes yes so it would, it would it would help all of these subgroups um get a lot more equality in their career and professional and um social opportunities throughout adulthood
1: right so you see our parenting crisis as an issue that could unite democrats and republicans how so? <laughs> that, that, that-
0: <laughs> I see the smile on your face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's very skeptical of this. Um, I keep waiting for conservative podcasts and talk shows to invite me on and, and to discuss so far. I'm, I'm still waiting. Um, but I'm really eager to engage so in dialogue. With we're pretty
1: conservative here. You know, the defendant of rap. are yeah? Conservative.
0: <laughs> oh, cool. I, okay. I, I, I wasn't, I, I, I'm sure you're, there's different flavors of conservative, well, that's um, true. obviously, but, um, so here's here's why I think that's the case. Um, first of all, in practice, a lot of red states have been pioneers in early education. You know, Oklahoma and, and Georgia um, have been enthusiastic about a lot of education stuff. Texas has a great college system. You know, there's a lot of surprising patterns when it comes to kids and education across red states. A lot of what conservatives say they well, let me start with the uh, the punchline. I think we could frame family care as the best way to get a smaller government for adults is to embrace a bigger government for kids. Okay. The best way to get a smaller government for adults is to embrace a bigger government for kids. Hmm. If you look at the determinants of all the things that conservatives care about, crime, who commits crimes, Marriage, who gets married and stays married. Two-parent households, who has kids out of wedlock versus in a stable two, two-parent family. Mm-hmm. Employment, who, re- who who consistently has a job and is contributing professionally to the economy. Um, reliance on government welfare programs, you know, like food stamps and Medicaid and welfare.
1: Right.
0: If you look at all of these things that conservatives really value and worry about, all of them, the biggest predictor, by far, bigger than every other thing that conservatives try to change, like taxes and, and you know, work incentives and all this stuff, the biggest determinant is educational attainment. Hmm. What family care would do is it would dramatically increase educational attainment. Another first order, massive determinant of these things is, so educational attainment is so powerful it's influencing these things because it gives you such rich opportunities to develop your career. Educational attainment is just one path to a better career. Family care would also invest in better vocational training and apprenticeships, which would have roughly the same effect. You would be setting up a much larger share of Americans so that when they reach age 18 or 25 or whenever they start getting full-time jobs, they would be doing it with more confidence and offering a lot more value to employers. And they would be spend all of these outcomes that conservatives talk about would just radically shift by like you know 20 30 percentage points there is no other policy on the table under discussion that would even come close to having these impacts so that's why i think conservatives should be serious about this you could Mm -hmm. reduce the number of people who rely on disability and unemployment and welfare and food stamps and medicaid because if we invested in kids early in this rich serious, dedicated, bipartisan way, nobody would need, uh, way fewer people would need these things. They would, they would have successful careers. They would have husbands and wives Mm -hmm. and they would have savings accounts. They would have Mm -hmm. homes. It was just, it would be a sea change in people's independence economically.
1: It would be a win-win, a win-win for all. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? If you're conservative, how does that register with you? I'm always trying to refine my message because I feel like there's something to work with here, but I'm not I think I think you've expert. got some
1: really great ideas, and um, okay. I was very impressed when I read your book. So, yeah, it's uh, th- which is why I'm so glad that you're able to join us and, and uh, share these ideas with us. Um, what do you make of the Congressional Dads Caucus, which was uh, just established at the end of January?
0: I love it. I think it's a great – I think it's great. I, I – I haven't followed it too closely recently. I hope they're partnering with you know whatever the moms in Congress are up to. Um, it's kind of I'm sure a lot of women out there are grown a little bit when they when they see all this attention being given to dads who like <laughs> are wearing their parent you know uh, identity well, on their you sleeve. Know,
1: why not? You know <laughs> why not? You
0: know, but it, it can only you, you need allies. Everybody needs allies, and the fact is, men remain the more powerful gender politically and economically in our society today. So the fact that men are shifting their identities to embrace parenting I think it's a wonderful wonderful development for oh yeah
1: I'm I'm all for it
0: yeah so I I'm I'm really I'm excited about I I actually sent a copy of my book to everybody in the congressional dads caucus and I haven't heard anything yet but I'd love to engage with them because I think they could be arguing for something like family care Mm -hmm. and getting that conversation further along
1: yeah So are the problems you're talking about mainly about lower income people or do rich and well-educated parents have a stake in this as well?
0: Rich and well-educated parents have a big stake in this as well. I mean, the country would be a lot safer and it would be a lot more fun if we didn't have as many people reaching adulthood with severe problems, behavioral and, and emotional and cognitive issues that were left unresolved because of lack of access to opportunity. Um right now a lot of middle upper middle class parents you know they have tough choices to make in terms of where they send their kids to school and where they want to live because mm-hmm. they're worried that if they if they if they live in a a mixed neighborhood they send their kids to school with other kids who might not be getting the same kinds of support and opportunities outside of school and that uh-huh. that's going to cause behavioral problems and distractions and make the classroom environment less oh, productive Oh I see right or yeah, yeah, that makes their, sense yeah their other choice is to sort of stretch their budget uncomfortably and live in a more posh exclusive neighborhood where the schools have higher ratings on these sort of superficial grade schools, ratings, um, websites. And that's the choice that a lot of parents today are talking about. I
1: know that's true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this, if, if there was a program like family care, lower income kids would not be reaching kindergarten with way weaker skills on average than higher income kids. Mm -hmm. And the The trade-offs between a more diverse school and a more efficient productive school't would, wouldn't, wouldn't be nearly as harsh. So I think families could be a lot more comfortable about choosing different places to live, attending more diverse schools would and many people value diversity for great reasons, like you really want your kid to know how to interact with different kinds of people and learn about different perspectives and backgrounds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's one benefit is that these it would it would tone down the forces toward class based segregation. I hear. Another big benefit, a big part of family care would also be increasing research on child development. Mm-hmm. And that would just turbocharge innovation that absolutely benefits all parents. So as one a really simple example that I love from Emily Osters, she's highlighted this in her work, you know, we didn't know what to do about these terrible peanut allergies for a long time.
1: You're right. And, and that's something we did not have years ago. I remember growing up we used to bring peanuts to school and we would share them during recess. And it was just a lot of fun or peanut butter sandwiches. I didn't even know that peanut allergies exist until I sent my son to, to to preschool, like peanut allergies. What is that?
0: Yeah. So that became a serious issue. And parents didn't know what to do about it because it's like a very scary thing. If your kid gets one of these peanut allergies, yeah, you can't enjoy peanut butter sandwiches. You have to watch out. You have to be so careful all the time. It's a hassle, and you
1: have to keep them and- away because the, the uh, p- kids that have peanut allergies cannot even smell it. Cannot even you can't even be in the same
0: room. It's but this crazy. Is something
1: new. This did not exist years ago.
0: Yeah, I actually don't understand why it didn't exist in past generations. It could have been that these kids actually died. It could have been because they the were kids exposed had- to.
1: so By the way, in Israel, there's less of a problem with peanut allergies because uh, parents give their children a snack. Uh, it's called Bamba, which mm-hmm. is this. Uh, i don't know if you're familiar with that which is i good. love
0: bomba oh eat so you know time. what i'm
1: talking about okay i was yeah, gonna explain yeah. it but you know what it is
0: yes um so this is just one example of how based on research that was conducted large-scale clinical research people discovered that bomba was helping jewish you know israeli kids not right. get peanut allergies and right. parents didn't know whether to avoid peanut allergies by not having their kids eat peanuts early in life and just wait because it might be dangerous or to get that peanut, right. you know, get kids accustomed to peanuts early and often. And that was a scary problem for all parents, not just low-income yeah, parents. Of but then the research just answered the question. The research took all the anxiety out of it. There is now a right answer to that question, which is help your kids eat a lot of peanuts as soon as possible. And that there, there are so many stressful open questions in parenting and child development that we do not have the answer to because we invest almost nothing in research on child development because right. kids have no political power. Right. I talk about how child development is the biggest industry in our economy. And if it were anything like other industries, it would be spending something like a hundred billion dollars a year on research. Instead mm-hmm. it's like $4 billion a year. So all of these open questions, you know, like how competitive should we be with our kid? You know, do we want our kid to learn excellence and um, the value of competition and take the value of taking something seriously or is that just stressing kids out and turning them off? There are really valid perspectives on both yeah. side, sides of that debate. There's very little research to really like answer that question, you know, and even less research to answer that question for specific types of kids. So I think it would just make parents, parenting a lot easier and more fun for all parents if we dramatically scaled up our research in this area. And that's a big part of what I'm advocating for in family mm-hmm. care.
1: You are so passionate about this subject, um, and typically when people are very passionate about something, it's usually personal. So if I may <laughs> ask you, is it personal for you?
0: It is personal for me. I think I, I happen to have a very diverse family in terms of, you know, the different kinds of careers and opportunities and life outcomes that I, I've seen experienced around me and my my cousins and aunts and uncles and, and um. Also in my extended family, because there have been different remarriages and things that give me a big, complicated right. extended family. And right. um, I, I, I guess I just, a lot of the results that I see in the research now coming out with, with the advent of big data, tying kids to their life outcomes in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, which is a really exciting new development in social science. Yeah. We're now seeing that, yeah, the difference between a child who has more versus less opportunity is like hundreds of thousands of dollars on average. In your adult lifetime income and all the stuff associated with income, like health and well-being, um, and I guess that just is sort of what I sensed growing yeah. up among my friends and family. In my, right. you know, I, I grew up in Orange County, California. So beyond having a very economically diverse family, I had a very economically diverse group of friends, uh-huh. and I saw the same patterns there. Where you know, I knew kids who were like br- brilliant at math. And some of them had parents who had PhDs in math and were doing everything to cultivate that talent and give them more opportunity. Same right. genius math kid on the other side of the classroom, their parents were having some problems and you know weren't mm-hmm. able to provide a lot of those support, right. you know, resources. And those kids had very different life trajectories despite starting with yeah. similar kinds of genius. So I guess I've just felt it up close, and it pisses me off, and I it just feels so unAmerican to me. And the more research has come out, the more it has seemed not like a naive utopian thing that we could address these problems. It really seems like we really realistically could. And mm-hmm. I find that really exciting and frustrating. And I want people right. to, to know about it.
1: Right. So how can people get in touch with you and uh, find your book, The Parent
0: Trap? You can get The Parent Trap at any bookseller, Amazon, bookshop. Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore can special order it for you. If they're not carrying it, your library can order it for you. If they're not carrying it, it's, it's a mass market available book. You can order it on buttons on my website, NateHilger.com. And I don't really like social media, but if you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Nate G. Hilger. And I do post things a little bit and um, I will share if I, if I have any, you know, op-eds or articles or anything that I want to share with folks interested in the book.
1: Great. Thank you so much. This was just so amazing, and I have to tell you, when I first heard about the Parent Trap, it, it, there was a book years ago that had to. Do, I'm sure you know that that story about the Parent Trap, where um, two child two twins, twins, a set of twins, that tried to get their pair, divorced parents back together. So yeah. I was like, okay, what is this about? It's totally yeah. something different. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you.
0: Great, great movie. Very unrelated. Yeah, well, it
1: started <laughs> as a book, and then it was a movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Actually, I should read that book. I am. To- yeah.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing such valuable information.
0: Thank you very much, Bela I really appreciated the opportunity to talk to your, your audience on the show.
1: Of course. And thank you to our audience for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to The Definitive Rap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.